All right. Good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm privileged to serve here at Seacoast also with Pastor Ryan as one of the teaching team members and uh, also one of the missionaries of the church. So it's great to be with you today to open the word. Before I do, though, I'm kind of curious. So uh, enough, not enough. Okay, enough, not enough. How many enough? Enough. How about not enough? Okay, you environmentalists make me sick, but anyway. Yeah, I, I know we need more rain for the environment. I get that, but I'm kind of tired of it. But that's because I think it's all about me. And I'm going to speak about that this morning. So I should have said not enough, but anyway. Hey, take your Bibles out. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 today as we continue our series on rhythms, these everyday movements of the Christian life. There's also an outline that will be very helpful this morning. Uh, trust me if you want to follow with me on that. It'll help you follow and pick up on a little more of what we're going to study. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much. Father, you have given us life through the good news of Jesus Christ. None of us deserve that. It's a gift of your grace. Thank you for the life you've given us. Thank you for this thing called the gospel, the good news. And now, Father, this morning, teach us how to live in response to that. Teach us a little more about how we can bring glory to you as we live our lives, responding to the gift you've given us, not to earn your favor or your love, but in response to it. That's my prayer. Help us not to settle for okay. Teach us how to strive to, uh, to bring you more glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you know me, you know that uh, I've spent almost 40 years of my life uh, as a pastor, 35 plus years. And one of the things that was a benefit of that was I never had more than about a five to seven minute commute to work. Now, for those of you that are the lions of commerce and you jump on the five and you jump over to the 15 and you're fighting the traffic all the time, then I feel sorry for you. Uh, I fortunately never had to do that. And in fact, now, because of my focus being a little less at Seacoast and more globally, I actually office from home. So my commute is about a 30-second commute from my bed to my lounge chair downstairs for my first cup of coffee. So I'm blessed. But just since January, uh, because of what we're doing now, training pastors in cooperation, especially with Dallas Seminary and Dallas, Texas, and elsewhere around the world, and working with Reach Global and with our church training pastors, especially in Africa, uh, my January already had me on a plane to Pittsburgh and back. It had me on a plane to Dallas. It had me up on a plane to Brazil and back as we had a chance to train about 15 doctoral students in Brazil. And, and, uh, and Becky and I have been on and off planes more than we want to say, even in the month of January and February. Uh, a week from today, we get on a plane for Nairobi, Kenya, where we will be going for about uh, 10 or 12 days to do another round of training with a partner in Nairobi, Kenya that trains pastors in rural areas. Uh, before this year is out, let me think in, uh, in March, we will uh, we'll be in Nairobi, Kenya in um, in April, we'll be in Australia, uh, and then uh, in May, we'll be back in Rwanda for another round of training in Rwanda. Oh, yeah, in August, we'll be in South Africa. 
Now that's a lot of air miles. So I've traded a short commute for about last year, 96,231, not that anybody's counting, uh, air miles. That's a lot of air miles. That's a lot of nights in hotels and guest houses. That's a lot of Uber rides to the airport and back. And that's a lot of rental cars. And, and, and one of the things that I've learned is that uh, in the whole travel industry today, there is something that every one of them do, whether it's a hotel or an airport, whether it's an Uber ride, as soon as you do it, what do you get in the mail? What do you get in your email? You get a survey, right? Because everybody, everybody wants to know, how did we do serving you? Everybody's wanting my feedback. I mean, it's kind of an irritant. I recently got back from a trip, for example, and the hotel that we were staying in, they've already sent me three requests for feedback. Because if, if I say, I don't want to give you feedback, I was happy, but I don't have time for you. They keep bugging me until I say, okay, I'll fill out your survey. And the survey always begins with a series of questions where they want me to rate how they're doing from one to five, or in, in, in the case of Uber, it's a one to five. In the case of, of Marriott, it's a one to 10. And, and, and as you go to rate those people, you're always, they're wanting those nines and tens. They don't want to be a five. Five is like, okay. They don't want the twos and threes. Like, you know something, I'm not coming back. This was terrible. They're really hoping that they'll get those nines and tens. And then at the end of every survey, there's one more thing they do, because I, I don't mind answering the, the quick number thing. You know, I can just click off the little dots and pick my numbers, and I'm done. But then they always end with a box, right? And what's the box for? You know what it is? Comments. They want some specific feedback. Okay, help us improve. What could we have done differently? And you type something into the box. You know, I got back as I was working on this sermon, I, I thought about what if at the end of a week, I flipped that? What if I sent my wife, my spouse, if you're a woman, what if I sent my spouse, what if I sent my kids, what if I sent uh, the people that work with me, a couple people that work with me that week, what if I sent to the other people in my life, how about two of my neighbors? And I sent him a little survey and said, you know, I'm kind of wrapped up a week and it's been good being with you. How am I doing? One to 10. Is it a two and three? Was it eh, a five? Was it eh, pretty good? That's a seven. Do I get any nines and tens? And then I thought, what if I sent this survey to God? And I said, God, give me a number. How was my week? And then God gets a box where God can actually type me suggestions. What do you think God would put in Dale's box? What do you think God would put in your box? at the end of a typical week, the people around you, how are you doing? You know, as I thought about that, I thought that is exactly the passage we're going to look at today and study. Because according to Jesus, what we're about to study today 
is a rhythm of your everyday Christian life that will move you from good to great, from okay to better or to great. Matthew chapter 20 verse 6 says this, and we'll look at it in a minute. Jesus said when his disciples were discussing which of them was the greatest, which of them would get the highest score, Jesus said this. He said, okay, it's okay that you're concerned about that, but let me tell you what is going to be in the box. If you want to be great, be a servant. Matthew 20, 26. If you want to be great, be a servant. Because the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life the ransom for many. Verse 28. Matthew 20. We'll look at the verses in again, but the, I want you to see that because I really think that this concept, Jesus says, is so important that if your goal is not just to be okay, but your goal is to be great, he said, this is vital for us to wrestle with. So what's it mean? Let's open the word of God. It begins in Matthew, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. But before we read that, let's set the context. Because the very first word of Philippians chapter 2 is what word? Do you see it? It's the word therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you can't properly study that paragraph without knowing what the, what's the therefore therefore. Okay, so what's it pointing back to? In other words, it's saying in response to something I've just said, therefore, this should be your action. So let's go back a little bit to chapter 1 verse 27 where he says this, only in response to the good news of Christ, now, only conduct yourselves, verse 27, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or, or I stay away and I'm absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. You're of one mind. You're striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, what he's saying is this. You've received a gift. God has given you life. Good news, the gospel is the short term for salvation, forgiveness, life in Christ. He's given us his spirit. He's given us purpose. You've, you've received this incredible gift from God. Now, in response to the gift, how are you living? And what you want is you want your life to actually reflect that you are worthy of the gift that God's given you. So what we're, gonna about, what we're about to study is this. It is not how to get the gift. It is not how to get God's favor. It is not how to get God's grace. It is not how to get the love of God. He already loves you and he's given you his gift. Now, how do we live lives that reflect appreciation for that gift? So he begins in chapter two. Therefore, in light of this gift and the need to live a life that really is worthy of it, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, intent on one purpose of living for Christ. That's the idea. And in the first two verses, what he does is this. Before he really tells them, how to accomplish the goal, I think what he's doing is he's answering a question that he knows is in their head. And the question is this, 
can I really expect to live a, a nine or a 10 type life? Can I really expect to, to be transformed and to, and to grow into being a, a living a life that's worthy of this incredible gift of the gospel? And, and, and what he's saying is, yes, you can. But there's a whole bunch of if words, right? If this, if that. In fact, here they are. The context is this challenge to live worthy of the gospel. There you go. The, the, then there's all these if words. And these if statements, as you'll see on the next slide, the if statements really mean if there is any of this, and there most certainly is. You say, Dale, how do you know that? Well, it's because Greek is different than English. In English, if I wrote a sentence and said, well, if Tom Brady has a bad game, then he may lose the Super Bowl. What do you think I mean by that if? Likely to happen or not likely to happen? Well, in English, you don't really know. It depends on what I think about Tom Brady, okay? Uh, it depends on what you think about that. Uh, he's probably not going to have a bad game, but I don't know yet. I have to wait and see. So if this, then that in English is you're not really sure what the author is thinking. But in Greek, they had two different ways grammatically to write if this, then that. And one of them expects a negative answer. You know, if, and it's probably not going to happen, but if it does. But the other was written in a way that anticipates a positive response. So what he's really saying in these first two verses is, look, if there is any encouragement because you are in Christ, and we know there is, and if there is any consolation for when you stumble because you are loved by God just like you are, and he does. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, meaning we all share the same Spirit of God living within us, and he does. If there is affection and compassion for you, and, we, and yes, you have the affections of God and the compassion of God upon you. If these are true, and we know they are, he says, then make my joy complete by living worthy of the gospel. In other words, go for it. Don't settle for mediocrity in your Christian life, but, but go for living a great Christian life. Not because we're great, but because in Christ we have encouragement, consolation, the power of his spirit, and all the affection and compassion you could ever want. So you need to see that verses 1 and 2 are kind of a, I mean, Paul is like almost cheerleading them. He's probably saying, you know, I know that in your mind, the question is, can I really expect my little life to make a difference? And the answer is, you bet you can, because you have Christ. And then he begins to get specific on what he wants them to do. And he gives them the big idea. So he goes from the big question of, can we expect to make a difference, to go to the big idea, which is, if you really want to be great, be a servant. But here's how the Apostle Paul expands on what Jesus said when he said, if you want to be great, be a servant. Pick it up now. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Stop right there for a minute. What's the big idea? In verses 3 and 4, the big idea is a shift. It's a shift from selfishness to service and conceit to concern. He says, number one, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. 
Uh, and the opposite of that, you'll see it on the next slide. Go ahead and to, yeah. Is you go from selfishness to a lifestyle of how can I serve you instead of just worrying about me. That's selfishness. You go from being concerned only about yourself and what makes me look good, that's conceit, to concern. See, that's the shift. And before I knew Christ, to be honest, I, uh, I, I really just cared, cared about Dale. And on a day when I'm not doing well spiritually, I just slip back into this. You know something? It's about me, and I wish you understood that. After all, as a Christian even, I can slip into this. It kind of goes like this. God loves Dale. Amen? Yeah, okay. God loves Dale, uh, therefore you should love Dale. Amen? Right? I mean, God loves me just the way I am. So I'm often telling my wife, so you should love me just the way I am. And, you know, but there's something missing in that formula, right? Okay. Because even though my wife loves me just the way I am, that doesn't mean I need to be settled in to stay there. But, you know, when I think, well, hey, I kind of love me. God loves me and I love me. We both agree. So can't you love me? But that's the way we tend to think, at least when I'm not really walking uh, with God the way I should, the way I should. But he wants us to go from selfishness to service. He says, don't just look out for your own personal needs, which by the way implies that it's okay to pay attention to your personal needs. He's not saying ignore yourself or abuse yourself. He's saying don't just look out for your personal needs, but look, pay attention to the interests of others, the needs of others. Don't just work out of empty conceit, but care for others. It's a shift in our focus. It's exactly what Jesus, I believe, was saying. Now I'll put it up for you to read. Matthew 20, 26. Can you read it out loud with me? Okay, so we really let it soak in. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And what's the role model? Go down to verse 28. Because Jesus then says this. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life on a cross to die for our sins. Because that's what we needed. Because he came to serve, not to be served, but to actually be that servant. And what he's saying to his disciples and to you and me, if you want to be great, go back one verse, in verse 26, if you want to be great, think and act like a servant. Now, to really understand that, though, I... You know, that, can be, that can be something that's very misunderstood in our culture. Because when we say, well, to be great, be the servant, you know, we begin to think things like, well, that means I'm weak. It means I don't have much to offer. It means I can get abused by other people. It means that I'm going to be like a slave. But that's not the model of Jesus. Jesus was not weak, right? Jesus not, was not weak. We're going to see in a minute he was God. Jesus was not a slave, but he chose to be a servant. So we have to use Jesus as our servant model to really understand it. So the cool thing is, in verse 5, he begins to unpack that. So in verses 5 through 11, we're going to quickly look at six aspects of servanthood. If Jesus is our model, and we're going to see how it applies in our, in our everyday life. Pick it up in verse 5. What is the Jesus model of serving? First, it begins with an attitude. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude. 
So it begins in our spirit. It begins in our, in our attitude. It's a shift from a spirit of pride to a spirit of humility at the core of our life. Therefore, by the way, this type of uh, servanthood can't be faked. I think sometimes in my life, I've known, you know, where you, you kind of fake that you want to serve somebody and you really don't because you're just trying to look good. But over time, that always comes out. You can always smell it. You can read when it's not authentic, when it's not genuine. So number one, Jesus didn't fake it. It was part of his heart. He wanted to serve. And that's why, by the way, you've got to build your love for Christ so that you are in love with Jesus Christ. You want Christ to control and shape your thinking and your life. And by the power of his spirit, he begins to transform us so that we, on the inside, are more humble. After all, if everything you have is a gift from God, not earned, but given by grace, doesn't that humble you? Yeah. You know, if you think like religion, that's Christianity, but religion says, I earn it from God. If you think you're earning God's love, you're going to be proud if you achieve it. Woohoo! I did it. But if you know that it's a grace-given gift, if your abilities are given to you by grace, if your opportunities in life, your education, your parents, where you grow up, etc., it's all a gift from God. Every good gift comes from above, James chapter 1. So if I realize every good thing about my life ultimately goes back to the grace of God, I don't become more proud, I become more humble. So we need to nurture a heart of humility. That's the first step in actually pulling this off. Number two, if you follow Jesus as the example, it's a voluntary choice. It's not something I'm forced to do. So it can't be faked. It also can't be forced. If it's forced, it's not real Christ-like servanthood. Look at verse 6. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, although he was God come in human flesh, okay, he did not regard his equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Stop right there. So what verse 6 and 7 teach us is that Jesus made a choice. Jesus didn't have to come and die for us. He didn't have to take on the form of a man. And it said even while he was on the earth, as the God-man, he didn't consider that something to be grasped. It's a, it's a hard word to translate in the Greek language. But it basically means Jesus didn't feel compelled to always be showing off who he was. Now, did he say that he was God? Yes. Did he prove that he was God? Yes. Did he do the miracles of God? Yes. But he didn't always go around saying, now, everybody needs to remember, I'm God. Pay attention to me. He didn't carry himself like that, but instead he carried himself like a humble servant, and he, and he took on the messiness of being a man, even though he was the sinless son of God, come in human flesh. Jesus was making a choice to be a servant. One of the ways that I know that I'm doing a, a better job of being a servant is when you serve someone and you do, you do something and they respond like this. You know, they say, Dale, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Sometimes I'll do something for my wife and she'll say, Dale, you don't have to do that. I'll do that. In other words, she's kind of saying, I don't expect you to do that. See, when you do the unexpected, 
things that you don't have to do, you're actually imitating Jesus. When you do the things that you're being paid to do or you ought to do anyway, you know, to be blunt, you're just doing your job, right? But when even in the workplace, let's carry it into the workplace. When you go to work and you do what you're paid to do, somebody really shouldn't say, wow, thank you. Because, hey, I'm paying you to do that. But when you step beyond what you are paid to do and you help somebody else out and you take on that responsibility and you serve. Or let's go, those, those of you in the room that are teenagers, when you go to college, you go to school and you do something to help someone and they go, you know, you don't have to do that. Say, I know I don't have to do that. I just want to. I just want to help you. See, that's more what Jesus modeled. Jesus-like serving is a voluntary choice. Number three, already mentioned this, is in verse 8, it shifts the focus onto others. In verse 8, being found in the likeness of a man or appearance as a man. He was more than a man, but he looked like a man. Verse 8, he humbled himself. There's the attitude. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him. So it's the shift of the focus on others. In Christ's case, it was like, what do I need to do for you? And he knew that we needed a savior. We needed someone to die for our sins. In his case, it was going to the cross. In our case, it's sacrificing for others. We'll come to that in a minute. The point is the shift goes on to others. And let me add this. It is essential to true significance in life. If you want to live a life of significance the way God really wants us to, to have an impact in our world, then especially when you are the leader, maybe you're the leader in your home or you're the leader in your office or you're the leader at work or at school or on a team that you're on, whatever, especially when you're in a position of leadership, whenever you serve those that you lead, you're modeling Jesus. You're imitating Jesus. And you're living a life of significance. I read a book recently that said this about living for significance instead of success. It said this. I'll put it up so you can soak on it. Success asks the question, how can I use others to achieve my dreams? But significance asks, how can I help others to achieve their dreams? How can I help you become all that God wants you to be? is what I need to say to my wife. It's what I need to say to the people in my church. It's it's where I need to say to my friends. It's what I need to say to my kids is, yeah, I'm the dad, you're the kid, but my, my calling in life is to help you become all that God wants you to be. How can I serve you? How can I help you achieve your goals? Now, the temptation is to think, All right, Dale, this makes good sermon fodder, but uh, (laughs) let's get real for a minute. If I did this at work, then I'm going to be taken advantage of. I'm going to get abused. People are going to walk all over me. You know, I'm never going to move up, blah, 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 blah. Interesting observation. Jesus says, if you want to be great, be a servant. Jesus didn't just say, if you want to be nice, be a servant. He said, if you want to be great, if you, want to be, if you want to move up, if you want to climb the ladder to success, the secret is to climb down the ladder and be a servant. 
and others will lift you up. God says he will exalt the humble, but he brings down the proud. You know, this is taught all through scripture. And you say, yeah, Dale, but I don't think it works in my world, in the real world. Okay, go and read the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. The book Good to Great by Jim Collins, written probably almost 20 years ago now, is a classic uh, piece of research. Collins, the short version is, uh, was a Stanford University uh, professor of business um, teaching in their, I think, their MBA program, their, their doctoral program, one or the other, and, and he took on a piece of research in which he tried to identify the difference between good leaders and great leaders. And he statistically identified how to find those, and you have to read the book to get the long version. But it's a very respected book. He's not a Christian, so he's not writing from a Christian perspective. But he wasn't studying leaders that turn bad things good. He was studying leaders that turn good things great. He wasn't worried about taking a company from a three to a five. He was talking about how do you take a company from a seven to a nine. And when he identified those leaders and he studied their lifestyle, their leadership style, he identified six things in the book. One of them jumped out at me because he said this. He said, we were shocked to discover that the good to great leader is like a person who has come from Mars. He says, they are more like, and he named a couple of people. Let's see if I can remember it, Greg. He says, they're more like, um, he says, they're not like Napoleon. They're not like Hitler. They're, they're, they're more like kind of the Mother Teresa type. Yeah, and, and in general, um, I'll give you the end of the quote. I do have that memorized. He says, they... They have a paradoxical blend. This is a direct quote from the book. The rest I probably just butchered. They are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. He says it's paradoxical. It's a paradox. You don't expect it. He says what I discovered is they actually have humility and they care about others and helping others advance as much or more than they do their own advancement. In other words, they, they love people and they don't just use people. And that's the difference. What he should have said is they're more like Jesus. It's a great read. But he actually documents statistically that if you want to climb the ladder in your career, if you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to have a better marriage, be great, be a servant. It works in every arena of life. Uh, this past year, uh, Clemson University played for two or three years in a row now for a national championship. Uh, they won the national championship by kicking Alabama's boop, okay, and uh, yeah, the mighty Alabama. And their coach, who happens to be a follower of Jesus Christ, after the game, I'll never forget, I, I read an interview that he said, uh, he said, you know something, I'm just having so much fun, and it's unbelievable that we're able to accomplish this. It's very humbling. He said, but what I've learned in life is joy, and he has a little formula. He says, it's maybe corny, but there's a lot of truth to it. He said this, for me, my joy is serving Jesus, serving others like these players, and then serve myself. 
Joy is Jesus, others, and then yourself. J-O-Y. And I just try to live that. He says, I don't do it perfectly, but that's what I try to do when I lead my team. That's, what I, that's the culture that I'm building. And let me tell you something. It's why Clemson is on a roll. Dab Dabo Sweeney. If you have a name like Dabo, you should not be winning national championships in football. I'm sorry. That's not a championship kind of name. But anyway, sorry, Dabo. But I, how many Clemson fans are there in the room? Any? Any? No? Okay. Well, you need to... One? Oh, where were they? There you go. Did you go to Clemson? So you've been around. Okay, good. At least you have good taste. You like Dabo. Okay, good. I do too. Number five. In other words, it's more about making an impact than making an impression. So Jesus said, even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't go flaunting it. He didn't have to tell everybody else that he's the boss, but he served others. He's more about making an impact on lives than making an impression and always trying to look good. That's conceit. Number six, it requires sacrifice, but is promised great reward. Requires sacrifice. Jesus, of course, paid the ultimate sacrifice. For you and me, I don't think God really wants us to model the servanthood of Jesus because you and I don't need to go out and die for everybody's sins. But yet we need to say, God, what is the cross that you want me to carry? What is the sacrifice you want me to make? Because if you're going to serve like Jesus, you're going to give up something of value. Now, for me, that's time and money. That's usually it. Or my personal preferences. Time, money, and my personal preferences, I value. And when I give up some of that for others, I'm serving. So where does all this apply? Well, we could go everywhere. We could go to the home first. Where does this apply? It applies in the home. Um, it applies in the workplace. Uh, bring that up. It applies in the neighborhood. Um, it applies in all of these different environments in, in which we live. It applies in our church. I'm so proud of our church. I'm excited that Ryan and the staff and the team, the elders, have a vision that you're going to actually take a Sunday, and instead of gathering for worship, we're going to worship all over North County as we serve in the name of Jesus Christ. So don't tell people your church is canceled next week. Church is very much meeting. We're just meeting out there instead of in here. That's just the way Jesus would love it. All of us have gifts. You can use this around the world. It's why Becky and I have felt that God has called us to care about pastors in Africa, 95% of which have no formal training. 95%, but yet they're loving Jesus sharing Jesus, building his church with almost no formal training. So if we can take what little bit we have and serve them, and I thank you for supporting us in doing this. We've got a trip coming up in, uh, to Rwanda in May that actually if you want to go with us and actually see this in action, uh, send me an email. We've got room to take a few people with us. But the point is this. You can serve around the world, but you can serve across the street in your neighborhood or better yet, start at home. That's where you learn how to think and live out being a servant. I thought about uh, how do I illustrate this? I thought I should, I should probably come up with a big way in which you do this for my own life. 
And I was kind of coming up blank. It's embarrassing. But then I thought about the survey idea, and I asked my wife. I said, maybe I should survey my wife. So I gave Becky a piece of paper, and I said, honey, I want you to help me with something. And I didn't tell her what I was going to do with it. But I said, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down for me, just make a little list of what makes you feel loved. Uh, how do I serve you, or how could I better serve you uh, to make you feel loved? And just make me a little list. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with it later. She said, all right. And, and then I gave her plenty of room to write on. This is what I gave her. Because <laughs> I thought, I don't really need a big list right now. Okay, I don't need an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. What I need is something about this size. And I thought this will kind of keep her, you know, focused, right? So, and then I realized how small my, my wife can write. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She wrote real small. You want to know what she said to me? This is what's in the box on my survey. Honey, how am I doing? Or how can I do better? This is what she wrote in the box. You want to know what it is? It's none of your business. <laughs> so go home and write your own box. No, I'll read it to you. Word for word. Number one. Um, Take time to do something active and outside together with me, like walking or bicycling. See, I don't really like to do those things. I have bad knees, and when I bicycle, I think, why am I just spinning? <laughs> so we bicycle to a place to get something to eat, which is why I'm having to be on a diet right now. But anyway, here we go. But yeah, so I think, okay, I can do more of that. I can do that. Number two, take care of what I call the man jobs. Now, I would have stopped right there, but then she gives in tiny print more detail. As a guy, I would just say, honey, do the, do the woman jobs. But no, she gives me more detail on the man jobs. Here's her list in parentheses. Things pertaining to cars anything pertaining to car except driving it or picking the parking place. She likes to do that. The house, the yard, and plans for our future. And then she puts dot, 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 et cetera. Okay, so there's more. I have to ask what the et cetera stands for when we get home. But I know she, she actually wants me to just make sure there's oil in the car, much as possible gas in the tank. Fix what's broken. I think I can do that. Number three, uh, do the little things around the house that just help me keep things up. And then again, she does parentheses as if I need more detail. Everyday chores like Picking up after yourself. I mean, like, why do I have a wife? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I thought that would wake you all up, okay? I mean, my mom was teaching me this when I was like three years old, right? Putting away the laundry. 
and she has dot, 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 et cetera. So there's more. <laughs> I know what some of that is, like empty the dishwasher, um, do the dishes, help do the dinner. Now, you know what all those things have in common? Those are all things that if I, if I do them, they're the things that Becky almost always says, honey, you don't need to do that. I'll do that. You see, there's a secret. When someone else says, you don't need to do that, then you're serving like Jesus a little more. Because you're doing, and then you can say, you know, I know I don't need to do it. I want to do it because I want to serve you. I just want to make life a little easier on you. You know, Becky, for example, she loves it when she goes back upstairs thinking she's going to have to make up the bed, and the bed miraculously has been made. It happens very rare, so it appears to be a miracle. <laughs> but on a good day, I do that. And she almost always says, honey, you didn't have to make the bed. I'll do that. So now I know that. I just wanted to because I know you would appreciate that. Now you say, Dale, these are silly little things. Let me tell you something. You will serve and love like Jesus more in the little things than the big things. It's the little things done daily that nurture love, that are appreciated. See, this is why we call this a movement of the Christian life. Oh, yeah, she had one more. <laughs> Telling others how much you love and appreciate or respect me. So I'm on record right now. I love, appreciate, and respect Becky Burke. <laughs> I think I've told you that before. But, but I, I love, appreciate, and respect Becky Burke. And all that agree with me say amen. 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 And I get credit for 300 points for that one. I've done it 300 times. No. No, I, but see, my guess is most of the men and women in this room would resonate with that list. It's not the big things. Those come along every once in a while. It's the little things. Unless you think I've got this wired perfectly, I don't. I thought, you know, remember I mentioned love your neighbor, serve your neighbor. Do you know the big rainstorm that came through? Uh, so the winds on Friday night blew over my neighbor's fence. Blew it down demolished it. Next day it's raining and I hear hammering going on in my backyard. And I'm kind of working on a sermon about serving. <laughs> and I, so I put on a jacket and I go out in the rain and two over to the fence and I talk to my neighbor and I said, oh my gosh, it looks like it really did a number on your fence. He said, yeah, it blew it down. And, you know, I said, do you need help? Now, my neighbor is a man's man, and I knew what he would say. He said, nah, I've got this. I can do it. Thanks for offering, though. And I said, no problem. Give me a call if you need some help. And I went back inside. Now, here's what I thought. I thought, he's like every other man. He's going to say, I don't need help. But I should put on my muddy clothes, because he's standing in the mud dealing with this fence. 
And I should go back out and say, you know something, I know you don't need any help, but why don't I help you anyway? That's what Jesus would have done. Ah, I missed it. Now, God still loves Dale. Becky still loves Dale. And my neighbor probably thinks I was a nice guy to come out in the rain and offer. But I think he'd appreciate it more if I actually got muddy with him. So, to be honest, I didn't really want to get muddy. I had to prepare a sermon on serving. <laughs> Thank you for the grace of God. So you're not always going to get it right. But make it a rhythm at home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, everywhere. If you want to be great, be a servant. Father God, thank you so much for the truth of your word and the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. And Father, help us every day, everywhere, by the power of your spirit, motivated by your gospel and your love. May we live worthy of the gift of life that you've given us. And may we follow Jesus' example. Not to earn anything, but just to be the people you've created us to be. And to live and love and serve like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.